Hey, everybody. It's great to see you. It's been a long time that I've been on this stage talking to actual people. So it's great. Uh, usually, we're like talking to a camera, and there's no one here. So um, guys, I'm so glad that's over. Uh, it's great to see your faces. Um, how are you guys doing uh, with the heat? Is everything OK? Yeah, do you have air conditioning? I hope so. That is the question of the day, by the way. Do you have air conditioning? Um, Okay, so guys, it is summer, and one of the things that I love to do in the summer, I don't know if you guys do this, but um, I create a summer movie watching list. So movies that I want to watch this summer, usually like the Dark Knight trilogies on there. That's one of my go-tos every year. Um, and I also make a reading list. So I, books that I want to read, um, stories, you know, usually I try again every summer to get through The Lord of the Rings. It seems to never work because it's way too long. Um, but I challenge myself to, to try to read books and to, and to watch uh, movies. And why do I do that? Well, because I love stories. And I'm sure uh, I'm not alone. Do you guys like stories? <laughs> I, I mean, if you think about how much we're actually surrounded by stories, it's pretty incredible. Um, stories are everywhere, and stories are so important, especially good stories. Good stories, they, they challenge us, they inspire us, they shape us. We, our life is a story. And when God wrote his word, inspired all the authors, the whole thing together, this entire book that we call the Bible, is one big story that God is telling. And it shouldn't surprise us that when God himself came down to earth and became human in the person of Jesus, Jesus told stories. He told fictional stories called parables. And these, these little stories, they're powerful. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're short little stories that are jam-packed with spiritual truth. And they, um, they challenge us. They shape us. They unsettle us. Um, today's parable that we're going to look at is going to be one of those. It's going gonna, it's gonna to unsettle us a little bit. It's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 18, verse 9. We're going to be picking it up and reading all the way to verse 14. Uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And just to give you a little bit of background here, Jesus has been teaching. He um, has just shared another parable about prayer. And then he looks around the room and um, sees uh, a number of people. There's, there's Jewish, uh, just regular kind of Jewish people there. And there's also these guys called the Pharisees. And he tells this parable to them. Uh, so here's God's word. Uh, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The Pharisee said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, 
standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, Jesus said, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the humble, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, we're going to look at this parable in three parts, okay? First, we're going to look at the problem, then the parable, and then the promise. So uh, first, the problem. Uh, as we were saying, Jesus looked around this room, and he saw a problem. He could see into people's hearts, right? He, he knows what's going on under the surface. And he looks out, and he sees that there are some in this group who trust in themselves that they are righteous, it says in the text. In other words, these are people who believe they are accepted by God based on their own self-efforts, their own righteous deeds. As a result of this belief, the text says that they treated others with contempt. So they believed that they were in right relationship with God, that's what righteous means. It means that you're in right relationship with God based on their own efforts, they thought. And because it was on them, they looked down, they literally despised, they devalued. We could use the word dehumanized. That's a word we use today. They dehumanized the life of others around them who were not like them. So the problem Jesus is faced with here is a problem of self-trust, trusting in one's ability to be right with God. The problem is found in this group of teachers called the Pharisees, but it's also a universal human problem, really. Uh, it stretches all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where our first parents trusted in self, and they sought to define good and evil for themselves, and so they took the fruit that God asked them not to, and they rejected God's word, and they said, no, we'll trust in our wisdom, our ability. That, that's what that story's all about. I'll trust in myself, thank you very much. But the problem Jesus is dealing with is even worse, because it's self-trust cloaked in religious clothing. So Jesus is in a situation here with religious people who practice religious things on the outside, but inside they're trusting in the self. And this problem still exists today. Uh, I think we're aware of the danger uh, of going through the motions, right? Because I've maybe used that language before. Ah, it just feels like I'm going through the motions with God, right? And we can get there. Like, trust me, if you're in, like, in that place and you're just not feeling, or you're not experiencing God, that, that's not necessarily a problem with you, okay? But there can be another kind of going through the motions where we're just doing it and our heart isn't in it. We sing, we listen to sermons, we pray, we serve, we give as a means of performance, of self-promotion, not sincerely because we love God and we love others. So that's the problem. It's a problem then. It's a problem today. So what does Jesus do about it? How does he, how's he going to bring this problem to our attention? Well, he tells a story, right? He tells a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. It's a brilliant story. It's a cutting story. 
it's kind of like a political cartoon, right? You, you see it, and it, it, it sort of cuts at you. There's these two contrasting characters, and when we look at them, we see ourselves better. And in many ways, though, the shock of this story is kind of lost on us at first glance. If you've read your Bible enough times, you'll know Jesus has many encounters with Pharisees. It doesn't take you long as you read through the Gospel of Luke, as you read through the, the rest of the Gospels, that you're like, okay, Pharisees, these guys are villains. Okay, they're bad. Um, those are the bad guys. Uh, that, make, that makes sense. He, Jesus is always having conflicts with them. And you might think, oh, tax collector, well, maybe they're pretty good because there's a story about Matthew and, and uh, he's a tax collector and Jesus actually invites him to be part of his disciples. And so you think, okay, tax collector, good, Pharisee, bad. But what's jolting about this for us is if we went back to the historical setting, if we were walking around in the shoes of a first century Jewish person, we would understand how shocking this is because tax collectors were some of the most despised people in the community of that day. And Pharisees were highly respected spiritual leaders. So from the outside looking in, that's what everyone would have thought, that's what everyone would have believed about these two people. And so when Jesus opens his mouth and he says, hey, there were two men, they went up to the temple to pray, there's a Pharisee, tax collector. You would be thinking, Pharisee, good guy. Tax collector, bad guy. Tax collectors were Jewish men who sold out their own people to work for the Roman government, who was oppressing them at the time. They were rich off of their own people. They were greedy. Pharisees were those local spiritual leaders who studied the Torah they were experts in obeying the law. They were poor. Pharisees were described at this time by the Jewish historian Josephus as a class of Jews who consider themselves the godliest of the nation, the most rigorous followers of the law, end quote. Pharisee, good guy. Tax collector, bad guy, right? And yet, as Jesus dives into the story, we quickly see the pridefulness, the self-righteousness, the ugly contempt Within the Pharisees' prayer, he doesn't really pray. He performs in front of God about all the ways that he's gone above and beyond the call of duty. He turns thankfulness into pretension. I thank you that I am not like other men, he says, as he stands above everyone else. We also see the humility, the contriteness, the simplicity of the prayer of the tax collector who knows he's fallen short. He has sinned against God and his fellow man, and he pleads for God's grace. See, the issue isn't really what's happening on the outside. They both are at the temple. They're both praying. It's not that those are bad things. It's what's going on inside. Jesus flips our expectations here. It's a stunning turn of events. He declares that the rich, corrupt, greedy traitor of a tax collector goes back to his house accepted by God. While the Pharisee, the, the, the pious, poor, obedient Pharisee, the teacher of the law, does not. You guys, he's a teacher of the law, okay? What am I doing right now? <laughs> like, I feel this parable just so you know. 
It's not just about you, it's about me too. It's unsettling. Stories are powerful. They're like mirrors. They help us see ourselves. They help us see our hearts. And that's what Jesus is doing in this this parable. So here's what's really uncomfortable about this story, though, is that he chose to tell this story about a prideful Pharisee to a group of Pharisees, like right to them. If we look throughout the Gospels, we see this this happens regularly for Jesus. Jesus does this a few times. Most of his epic conflicts are with the religious, not the irreligious. Uh, There's one time he even says, you know, the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors get into the kingdom ahead of you, he says to these guys. So this is a warning in this parable for all people, but particularly for religious people, because you guys, we are more tempted. Those of us who, who, who do religious things, we practice our faith, we're more tempted to be self-trusting and self-righteous. Tim Keller writes this. He says, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of the day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The, people, the kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people, the licentious and the liberated, or the broken and the marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers, the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be proclaiming the same message Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, he's referring to the parable of the prodigal son who who runs off with his father's money, they must be full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. The elder brother in the story never repents. As Christians, we're blessed, you guys, to have the knowledge of God. We are blessed to have that. But Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 8.1. He says, such knowledge, if not connected to love, it simply serves to puff ourselves up. Paul also told the church in Rome, he said in Romans 12.16, do not be haughty, that means prideful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Larry Osborne, in his book, Accidental Pharisees, describes what he thinks of a modern-day Pharisee might look like. He says, "Uh, you've probably known a jerk for Jesus. Someone who thought they were advancing the the cause of the kingdom when in reality they were simply embarrassing the king. I think of a man in our church who sees himself as a mature, front-of-the-line Christian. He's passionate about the scriptures He loves to study, he digs deep, he knows far more than most, so he's taken it upon himself to become the spiritual watchdog to protect the rest of us. He barks at and attacks everyone who misspeaks or who misuses or misunderstands the Bible. He thinks he's helping out Jesus by keeping the heretics out, but all he does is scare people. The problem is that God never asked him to be a pit bull for right doctrine. God does ask him and all of us to contend for the faith. But he asks us to do it in a manner exactly opposite of the way my pit bull friend defends the gospel. We're supposed to avoid quarreling, to be kind, and to gently instruct people. 
Now, the Canadian version of this might be more subtle because um, in Canada, we're less likely, I, I, I suppose, to tell each other, to be jerks to each other's faces, okay? I've noticed this about us as Canadians. We more, we're more likely to do that behind each other's backs or to do it online where we feel safe. And look, it, it may not be Bible knowledge alone that you use to exalt self. It could be something else. It could be really anything. Here's a question for us. Who would you be most tempted to pray, Lord, thank you that I am not like fill in the blank? Who's that person that you most likely would despise? Is it those anti-vaxxers? Or is it those who got the vaccine? Is it the woke liberals or the fundamentalists? Is it the conspiracy theorists or the rednecks or the crazy cat lady down the street? The millennial hipsters, my arrogant boss. I don't know who that person is for you. I know who it is in my own heart. I don't know what it is for you. And don't hear me saying you have to agree with these different groups of people. That's not the point. Truth matters. But the human heart can find any small problem in someone else. We can use it as leverage to make ourselves feel better about ourselves and to hold others in contempt. You guys, it's so subtle. And I want to share with you a verse that's meant a lot to me over the years. I, I, I memorized it. It was one of the first verses I ever memorized when I was 19. And I actually forgotten about this verse for a long time. I just totally forgot about it. And I was in a, my seminary class online the other day, and um, the, the professor quoted this verse. And he applied it to, uh, to uh, us. <laughs> and so... I'm feeling this one again, but I want to share it with you. It's a great verse. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, nor the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. You guys, I've had to ask myself in the last, you know, couple years, I've, this is a good question I've been asking my, my heart. It actually was uh, given to me by a counselor that I was seeing a couple years ago. And he asked me this question. He said, Chris, are you willing, if, if your ministry got taken away from you, would you be willing to serve the Lord in obscurity? And that, like, that question hit me hard. Would I be willing to serve him in obscurity if all this is gone? Is this all just about me? And it's a question we all have to ask ourselves. When we come to church and we do religious things, are we doing it for self-promotion? Are we doing it because we love Jesus? We love others. Jesus gives a promise at the end of this parable. He gives a promise for those who exalt self and a promise for the humble. So he's grabbed our attention, and then he drives home the point. He says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word justified here means to be made righteous, to be made right with God. It's the character in the story we least expect 
By all outward appearance, he seems like the wrong person, but he's made right with God because inwardly he's repentant. The tax collector expresses grief over his sin. He asks for God's mercy. He trusts in God's grace alone to save him. He humbles himself so God lifts him up. Humility is not putting yourself down. It is seeing yourself rightly. Seeing yourself rightly in light of who God is and in light of others. Jeremy Taylor said this. He said, humility does not consist in criticizing yourself or wearing ragged clothes or walking around submissively wherever you go. Think of like Charlie Brown. Just, you know, he's always glum. You have to be glum all the time. That's not humility. Humility consists in a realistic opinion of yourself, namely that you are an unworthy person. <laughs> I like the way he says that. It's, we're unworthy. That's just, that's just reality. He's so good. He's so good, you guys. We're unworthy. It's not that God loves a good groveler. Okay, he's just, he's just, He's, he's just so excited to just see us grovel all the time. That's, that's, not, that's not it. He, he just wants us to come to reality about ourselves. It's like when my children have, have sinned, right, and I, I'm trying to confront them about it, and I just want them to admit it because I want them to come back into fellowship with me because I love them. So it's not about putting ourselves down. It's not about exalting ourselves. It's about knowing the truth about ourselves so God's transformative work can begin in our lives. If you're wondering what it looks like to live humbly, look at the next five stories after this parable in the Gospel of Luke. So go home, and that's a good little assignment for you. Read right after this. There are five stories about humility and pride. The first is that these children are brought to Jesus. And he says, they, they get in the kingdom, Jesus says, and you need to become like them. Why should you get involved in children's ministry, you guys? Partly so that you can learn what it is to be humble. Because when you watch children, they're just, there's no pretension in children. They're just, they're amazing. They just tell you exactly what they're thinking. There's no pretension. Look at them. Learn from them. Then there's a story about a rich young ruler who tries to impress Jesus with his good works. He's prideful. Then there's a story about a blind beggar who cries out for mercy. And then a story about Zacchaeus, an actual tax collector who humbles himself and he climbs a tree because he's short. And yeah, it's a pretty great story. It's a classic Sunday school story. And he, when he meets Jesus, he sells half his goods because he's been changed. In the middle of those stories, though, there's one more story, and it's where Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. In other words, he's telling them, this is, guys, this is what humility looks like. I'm going to die, but the Father's going to raise me back up. You see, we serve a king who didn't need to humble himself, but he did to offer us salvation. The Father exalted him to his right hand, if Jesus was sinless and he humbled himself, we who are sinful ought to humble ourselves. And wonder of wonder, you guys, he promises to lift us up when we do. One way um, that we can humble ourselves this morning, we can practice this, is through communion. 
Um, when we take the Lord's Supper together, the bread and the cup, we receive it by faith. It takes humility to receive something, to receive a gift of what Christ has done that we couldn't do for ourselves. Taking communion isn't about showing how spiritual we are to our neighbors. It is about humbling ourselves and receiving Christ's mercy, his love, and his presence. So I invite you to grab your little cup that you got when you came in, and you're going to remove the little top cellophane layer here. I had a really hard time with this a couple weeks ago, so don't feel bad. And take out the little wafer, which will be our bread. And this uh, is just a, it's a symbol of um, the story of Jesus where he has dinner with his disciples the night before he died, and he told them to practice this, to remember him. Uh, Paul reflected on this event in 1 Corinthians 11, and he said, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we take this bread together, you guys, let's just pause. Let's reflect on the humility of Jesus and how he died uh, for us. His body was broken. So let's take it together. Okay, you can take your cup again. And just uh, tear off the next little layer there where you can get the juice. So Paul continues, he says, In the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's take the cup together, you guys. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your humility, that you came to earth, you left your throne in heaven, you came to earth to die a sinner's death, and the Father exalted you. And... Uh, Jesus, we struggle. We struggle with pride. Um, God, it's in all of us. And Father, for those of us who were just so used to all the comfortable religious things, Father, I pray that um, our hearts would not be um, driven by what we look like, Lord, but by um, our love for you and our love for others. God, help us not to hold others in contempt. Lord, would you forgive us uh, where we have and God, would you help us to walk with humility, to walk humbly with our God today? Um, God, be with my friends. Uh, bless them as they, as they go and um, protect them from the heat as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.